The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're coming to you from the beautiful, partly cloudy today studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach us uh, at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. We're going to be back with our guest. A very honored guest here today for a whole hour, John Diffie, uh, the immediate past CEO and president, right, of uh, Kendall Corporation. And uh, we have lots to talk about, about the changing nature, the changing face of health care and residences and what's going on. And we'll be doing that right after our, this message from our good friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Hi, and welcome again back to our, our segment today here. First and second segment with our same guest, uh, Bill, John, John, John Diffie from Kendall Corporation. Listen, uh, John has, uh, lovingly decided that, uh, if you want to call in, ask some questions of him, you can do that. The number to call in is 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. So, John, welcome. Welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. Thanks. It's nice to see you. It's good to be with you, Richard. Um, I've admired the work that you've done oh, along thank with you. Bill Silbert and Beryl Goldman of the Kendall staff, uh, the content that you provided, and it's great to be a part of thank the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, our, my, my partners, they've just hung them up and moved on, transitioned, and you're transitioning after how many years in the field? Forty years in the field. I joined uh, Wesley Homes in Atlanta, Georgia, a Methodist oh. organization in 1976, right out of graduate school. So, well, well, welcome. Thank Forty you. years. Let's, let's talk about that right away. Um, the the nature of your field of the healthcare and community residential community field i would imagine if it's anything like my profession has undergone some let's just say for the sake of uh, understatement radical changes uh in 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 your career absolutely talk to me about that journey what what have you seen well when i joined the field in 1976 uh, we were about 15 years, not quite, 13 years past um, sort of the Great Society, the London Johnson years, um, the establishment of Medicare, Medicaid, and later housing, you know, housing and urban development, a lot of the title programs and nutrition and other programs that were for elderly as well as others. A lot of government investment in our field. At the time, residential retirement communities were almost entirely not-for-profit. They had grown out of religious denominations, um, providing places for retired clergy and then widows of clergy and later as extensions of their religious denominations' sense of mission 
to serve older people. Um, the older segment of our society was not well off financially. Uh, it was a, um, if it, it, there were a number of poor elderly in our country. Um, so a lot of attention of, of government to providing housing and, and health care uh, for older adults. My first job was um, running the fourth largest um, nursing home. It was then called Intermediate Care in Georgia, 270 beds in a facility that was also a HUD 236 low-income housing um, community. Um, deeply rewarding in the, that the people we serve could probably not have afforded the kind of quality they enjoyed any other way. Um, as, as the concept of residential retirement became more popular in the 70s and 80s, we saw um, these continuing care retirement communities develop, and they became widely accepted in middle and upper middle class circles as, as well as um, the continua that were typically fee-for-service that had been established earlier. Um, they still, during the 70s and 80s, were predominantly not-for-profit. Uh, we've grown now to be about 2,000 continuing care retirement communities across the country. But now they're about 75% uh, not-for-profit because it, it has attracted real estate developers, hotel chains, and others who would like to get into the field of serving older adults using this type of model. So the nature of competition has changed. The financing mechanisms have changed. The popularization of the concept is very different. Much broader spectrum of society um, involved in them. And then this is all happening in the context of significant changes in the U.S. healthcare system overall, uh, which leads us to kind of rediscover what the most appropriate niche for long-term care is in a reformulated healthcare system. Talk to me a little, because we talked about this a little bit before we went on air, and, and um, this shift to the for-profit modality versus the not-for-profit modality, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, if I'm a for-profit company, I want to make a profit, but in your experience, uh, is there any compromise in the level of care um, if the dollar is at the bottom line of all this? Um, first, I should be honest that I have a distinct bias. Each of the organizations I've served has been a 501c3 uh, not-for-profit, so that's the context in which I've worked, and I acknowledge that bias. Most studies that have studied quality differences in long-term care uh, comparing for-profit and not-for-profit have um, revealed a a quality difference that favors the not-for-profit experience. And I don't know that that's terribly surprising. Um, Probably just as importantly, if someone is looking at a, a choice one wants to ask, well, who's behind it and what's the agenda and what's the track record? And we've seen a lot of people come in and out of this field with aspirations to make a profit. Um, often, if they come from another sector like hospitality, um, they struggle a bit with the health care piece. And then second, um, what you find when you build a residential retirement community is the average life expectancy of a, a resident will be 15 to 20 years. And not surprisingly, they care (laughs) about how it's run and what's happening. They want to know about its finances, and they object strenuously if it appears someone's making um, an unconscionable profit 
off of their living there. So for the for-profit operator, the entry fee continuing care retirement community model becomes messy in the sense of the degree of resident scrutiny of what's going on. In the the not-for-profit model, Boards of directors serving without compensation as an as a as an element of mission, often of a religious denomination. Um, residents are frequently on the boards, and so the whole process is more transparent. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think the for-profit world has moved away from the entry fee model to a rental model, where residents don't have a financial stake over a long period of time in the for-profit model. And that, I think, has worked better for the for-profit providers than the entry fee model. If I'm looking to, to, as we know people in our generation, uh, to make a move, what are the the half a dozen or three things that I need to really keep in front of me when I'm I'm looking to look look to move into a continuing tear retirement community? Number one is the things that I just mentioned. Who's behind it? Why? Mm-hmm. What's their agenda? And what's the track record of the developer and operator? Just let me. Can you find all this on the online on the internet? You, you can find a lot of it. Yeah. Um, you can, They should be furnishing what's called a disclosure document in most most states. Um, and and they, with the internet, you can chase down a lot of mm-hmm. facts about organizations now. A second is to spend time living in the community before you actually move there. How do you do that? Can you, Most yeah. communities will provide a, what they call a try-it stay. Really? Where you can book a guest a house accommodation or uh, a, a unit and go and experience life there for two or three days. There are some directories of continuing care communities and some not quite um, as well-developed as TripAdvisor or other things for for travel, but increasingly there are critical reviews of retirement communities that are available uh, via Internet or in published form. Those are worth reading. You can go on um, medicare.gov and chase down uh, the comparative ratings of nursing homes on a five-star system. It's kind of a crude tool. Um, a number of people would say maybe not the best, but it's it's sort of the best that's popularly available. And look at how the, the health care centers of each of the retirement communities have been rated by the surveyors, uh, their staffing levels, uh, their quality, um, and so on. Um, importantly, talk to people who live in the communities. Um, see if you know who's on the boards of directors. Are they people of conspicuous integrity and um, with solid backgrounds? Uh, those would be among the main things. The, the things that a lot of people, um, particularly in the for-profit world, I think uh, tantalize the consumer with is curb appeal, um, staircases, waterfalls, atria, right. um, and so on. Um be careful and um, importantly see when someone moves to a community and later develops uh, frailty, cognitive impairment, are they still included in the life of the community or are they set apart? Um, some communities present as um, sort of pristine and healthy and you don't see wheelchairs or, or walkers. 
um, and and that has a certain appeal to, to folks. But what it can mean is that when you do become frail um, or cognitively impaired, that you kind of move across the river sticks. And, mm-hmm. and uh, what you'd like to see is a community that continues to include and honor people no matter what the state of health may be. We're speaking with John Diffie, uh, test CEO of uh, the Kendall Corporation, just reflecting upon the changes of this industry in the 40 years that uh, he served. And um, you can contact and actually uh, talk to Mr. Diffie at 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306 if you wish. And you're listening to Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And again, we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And we'll be right back with Mr. Diffie. I want to pick up on this isolation thing, too, because uh, it keeps coming up over and over and over and over and over again and various uh, rather negative consequences for everybody. And we'll be doing that right after uh, a message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in Together Transforming the Experience of Aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to uh, today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, again coming to you from WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. Streaming live on WWDBAM.com, and you can join the conversation with John um, at 888-329-3306. It's 888-329-3306. We're speaking with uh, John Diffie on his experiences of over 40 years uh, in the healthcare field and um, continuing care retirement communities. Coming out of that uh, last segment, you you talked about, um, alluded to this issue of isolation. And this is a real issue. Uh, As I travel, it keeps coming up over and over again. uh, And I think it's one of the great fears that we have of our own aging Mm -hmm. about eventually winding up being isolated, totally alone. And it's a real fear. Talk to me a little bit about... um, the psycho spiritual psychological aspects of isolation and what people can really look for when they're looking at a community to to make sure that their loved one is not or their spouse or themselves as you would say uh pushed out over to the other side of the river a really good um, point richard um probably one of the most significant predictors for institutionalization along with a fall or some other health event, is the loss of a a partner and the eventual um, effects of isolation. Um, Loneliness, depression, uh, a a lack of uh, feeling a purpose or meaning in life, uh, a gradual disengagement. And it's one of the most significant um, issues in aging for which we all should plan as you probably have heard the saying, that denial is not just a river, river in the Egypt. middle of the east, right? right? And uh, it's hard for us at every stage of life to plan for the, the one ahead that we haven't experienced. 
it was hard for us to all want to do homework um, at a certain age, and it's all it's hard for us all to imagine ourselves uh, with a different set of needs when we're 10 years older, but really important to do. Um, that's one of the great advantages of of residential retirement communities is is that um, there is this opportunity to discover and be engaged in a world of new opportunities. Uh, and we've had story after story of, of someone saying, well, I'm not ready yet, I don't want to move, and so on. And then within six months of having made the transition, um, we hear frequently, gosh, I wish I'd done this several years earlier, uh, among the most common conversations that we have. So it's going to be interesting over the next uh, decade. There's, there are, are not really good outcomes data in long-term care. In ho- hospital care in the last 15 years, there's been a lot of progress. But we're going to see more and more um, studies of populations living in the broader community, living in residential retirement communities, living at home but with a support of an at-home kind of program, such as Friends Life Care here in this area or Kendall at Home. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will see um, more and better information about the the effects of making certain choices in population health. And we'll see what models of service actually um, statistically produce the better outcomes. And I think that's one of the most important developments that we're likely to see in our field over the next decade and very much needed. It will inform choices by the consumer. It will inform programming by organizations. And ultimately, it will inform the use of public funding uh, to put support behind those models that produce the best outcomes and represent the best uh, allocations of, of public money. Hmm. Well, I, I know that our gener- the baby boom generation, having seen in many cases what happened with our parents' generation, um, seems to be committed not to walk that walk, uh, whether it's, you know, having a parent, you know, isolated and being left alone or, or it just seems to have imprinted on our generation a lot. You, you, you spoke about this concept of population health mm-hmm. as a concept that's emerging. Um, and I would imagine it's a concept not known to, to most people. What is population health? Okay. Let me frame it and I'll go back and yeah. kind of link up with what have I seen over my 40 years. Correct. Um, in the hospital world and long-term care world, we used to be paid uh, in the healthcare piece based on what were called usual and customary charges. And that was an average costing kind of way. You look at what everybody charged, um, you figured out what was um, t- average or slightly better, and the government compensated you on that basis. And the second iteration of payment, we moved to a concept called Diagnostic Related Groupings, DRGs. DRGs, right. And that was an effort to arrive at standard costing. So when you went in for a hip fracture or um, for for, um, heart surgery, what should that cost when you looked at um, and how long should an average length of stay be um, by diagnosis? In essence, those two models, whether average costing or standard costing, usual customary charges or um, 
or diagnostic-related group groupings were both ways of paying the um, provider community for fixing people after they crashed and burned. The new m- method is uh, population health uh, or capitation um, by whatever name is, a, is an effort to incentivize the provider community to um, keep people well. So uh, an, an accountable care organization would have a population for which it's responsible in terms of health care and, and well-being and would be paid on its, its ability to produce a better basket of outcomes than, um, than others. So the challenge to the healthcare community, including long-term care, is not only to know our cost structures well, but also to know what it is that produces better outcomes and be able to do that. So is it fair to say, given what you're saying, that there's right now we're in a shift from spending dollars to prov- to fix illness mm-hmm. has being shifted slowly to spending dollars to prevent illness? Right. Would and that be a fair statement? It, it would, except for the word slowly. Okay. It's, well. it's, now, it's now moving uh, with increasing speed. It was moving slowly right. over the past five years. It, it's now becoming the way the game is played. Is that because all the statistics are telling us that there's this huge expenditure of finances at the in the last two years of life? And so if we can cut that down... Beforehand, eventually the system will save money. Right. People who've been at this a while speak of something called a, a triple gain. Okay. And it's it's, it's a, not a dive in the Olympics, right? No, no, it's not a two, three full twists or a two and a half gainer. It's this is a there are three omni objectives as we go about reforming our healthcare system. One is uh, we want it to be a more satisfying and more easily navigable um, experience. We want people to, to, to say of their experience in the health, U.S. healthcare system, um, this works. Second, we want improved outcomes. We want to postpone morbidity and mortality. We want to uh, improve well-being in, in all of its dimensions. And then third, we have a pretty expensive pretty fragmented healthcare system in this country. We spend a lot of money and don't get the biggest bang for our dollar. So we need to use our resources more efficiently. We literally can't afford to operate the way we have been. This, um, each of the changes that I described, the usual reasonable charges, usual customary charges, the diagnostic-related grouping, and now uh, population health, Every time that one has been developed, folks have figured out how to game the system, Mm -hmm. and they've each been imperfectly implemented, and this is being imperfectly implemented and will be imperfectly implemented. So we'll have to have a certain commitment to it philosophically and a patience with it as it gets refined and developed, and and the, the fraudulent billing under any system needs to be weeded out. And, uh, and is being more aggressively, fortunately. But I think it's here to stay. I think the philosophical undergirding for it is important. There are going to be a number of detractors that, that will shift money toward the family physician, the geriatrician, and, and will um, be uh, not as lucrative for um, 
um, physicians and other extenders who are um, in some specialties that have been pretty generously reimbursed in the past, I would predict. Mm-hmm. It also will require significant changes from hospitals, and they're becoming truly health systems. You're seeing groups like in, a, in our neck of the woods, Mainline Health, opening up these really state-of-the-art fitness centers um, to compete for um, acquiring clients into their system with the uh, goal of helping that population stay as well as possible. So it's it's not a theoretical change at this part, point. It's really moving. In the long-term care world, the uh, group of providers that isn't making that adjustment and isn't figuring out how to optimize the well-being, how to measure the well-being of their populations, and how to make themselves candidates for reimbursement under this new model will be exiting, and you'll see more sophisticated providers in the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector acquiring um, long-term care beds, um, having figured out how to use those effectively in the, in the new system. I worry a bit, uh, more than a bit, that as we lose some of the nonprofit providers, we lose a sense of ethics, um, uh, genuine compassion uh, and caring. Uh, those cultures, I think, are important and special. And we run some risk of having care commoditized. Yeah, that's that's why you know when we started this conversation about the profit versus nonprofit thing, and and it is in the United States of America, and where you know let's be honest, the the dollar, the bottom line, seems to speak to a lot of this stuff. And I think there's a fear in a lot of our generation, uh, and you alluded to this that. Um, our own health care in our last decades of life may be, as you, the word you use, commodified or, mm-hmm. uh, and reduced to the bottom line, what is this person's value monetarily? And that goes against the values I know of Kendall, but it goes against the values of a lot of people, you know, just, just the human values. It, that's mm-hmm. a challenge. It, it's it, got to be a real challenge. It is, and I think the, the, a weight of responsibility also belongs on the not-for-profit sector, which sometimes is slower um, to um, become astute in financial operation, to become efficient. Uh, one of our big problems is that we're a cottage industry of small organizations that um, haven't achieved the kind of scale that leads to uh, depth of resources and sophistication. And uh, although there is more consolidation happening in our sector, uh, we have seen in this area uh, geographically a number of uh, well-motivated not-for-profit sponsors close. Um, They've been more interested in autonomy than they have been in in thriving. Um, So you know, the, I'm, I'm a free marketeer for the most part and, and believe in a free market economy. Uh, unfortunately, there's some places I think it works less well and to the benefit of the consumer, and healthcare, uh, in many respects, is one of those um, because you're really talking about individual lives and the lives of a population and, and competition with um, paying stakeholders, investors. And um, I think something can be lost uh, when a system is is too much organized around 
for profit in healthcare. Uh, it, it works great in hamburgers and furniture and <laughs> other things. Um, human beings' lives. Human beings' lives. I think there's a real place for the not for profit sector in, in healthcare. We're speaking with Mr. John Diffie, the former president and CEO of the Kendall Corporation, uh, here on Boomer Generation Radio, WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia, and we're streaming live again on WWDBAM.com, and we'll be back with John. I'm going to move into a question um, about this explosion in um, Alzheimer's and dementia and how the system seems to be evolving and caring for this growth factor in our generation. We'll be doing that right after our message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to Boomer Generation Radio and uh, your host, Richard Address, coming to you again from WWDB AM 860 here in Philly. WWDBAM.com. We're streaming live on that. Again, Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And just a reminder that this show and all of our Boomer Generation Radio shows are podcast on the website, uh, jewishsacredaging.com. You can just go to that website and scroll down the thing there and you'll find uh, all the shows for Boomer Generation Radio. So we're speaking with John Diffie, the former president and CEO of the Kendall Corporation. We're talking a lot about his reflections about all these changes in the last 40 years. Um, so we're being, we're now seeing, John, this explosion in dementia and Alzheimer's and the care of that and the impact on families. And as I go around traveling and speaking to families, the, the real, real, on one level, substance of fear, mm-hmm. um, the caregiving challenges, the financial challenges, and then the choosing of an appropriate facility, uh, if, that becomes necessary, where it, which it does in many cases. So in the continuing care retirement community field mm-hmm. and this whole area that you invo- have been involved with, what's happening with that? Because I see more and more of these CCRCs having a step-down memory unit attached to so somebody can just easily transition into there. Sure. Oh, you, you're spot on. It's a, it's a growing Phenomenon and is to speak to it demographically. Um, first of all, we're we're going through this tremendous demographic shift in, in which uh, our society, when I started in this field, had about four people in the income-producing years of 18 to 65 for every one person younger than 18 and older than 65. As I'm finishing my career and in the decade that follows, we'll be right about at two people. Right. In the 18 to 65 years for every um, person younger than 18 and older than 65. Not that 65 now defines earning years. Uh, lots or of anything else. We're working yes. well past that point. Right. 
But in, in general, um, the challenge to healthcare organizations just demographically is, is to have the, uh, the numbers of uh, skilled, competent, caring staff available. So that's stretch number one. Stretch number two is that uh, it used to be the case that nursing homes had uh, far less in the way of acuity residing in them. In other words, uh, the screening criteria uh, for movement into a skilled nursing facility, and particularly old intermediate care nursing, were such that um, combined with the economics of people who, who were choosing to live there, it was the best housing alternative sometimes. And, and uh, the population that lived in skilled nursing, assisted living, intermediate care nursing did not have the same level of health care acuity that the current population does because they're now being screened more vigorously and there are many more Medicare and Medicaid alternatives to institutional placement. So now the population that resides in skilled nursing uh, and assisted living um, has a much higher level of acuity. And within continuing care communities as well as other places, the nursing home sections of those communities has more people with a diagnosis of cognitive impairment of one form or another, Alzheimer's often. Uh, and, and it puts pressure on some of the models of delivery of service. It's always been Kendall's philosophy, and, and I, I guess I should be clear here, I'm the retired CEO. Right, right. I stepped down um, January, December 31, and Sean Kelly, my successor, has been in place since that time. And then for the last six months, I've been part-time and um, and sort of out of uh, everyone's hair. So um, I don't, don't presume to speak on behalf of Kendall here, but I will describe kind of my own experiences. As some have said, the fastest way to accelerate the decline of a cognitively impaired older person is to surround them completely with other cognitively impaired older right. adults. So that I think one should be really cautious before assuming that a um, a separate memory support unit or other form of uh, service specific to a cognitively impaired population is the right answer. On the other side, on the other side of that question, because the po- the percentage of the population in in settings is now. Uh, more acute in terms of their needs and more frequently cognitively impaired, the burden on the cognitively intact population is greater and the quality of life uh, more challenging. So that those who are providing services in continuing care communities and other congregate living setting have to really go back to school on what what is the optimal service model and residential model for those populations. At Kendall, um, Judy Braun, who's a terrific chief operating officer with a Ph.D. in geriatric mental health nursing, has been leading Kendall in re-evaluating its, its model, doing surveys of the literature um, and uh, in other ways going to school on taking staff to visit other settings and um, really rethinking uh, the service model. And where Kendall lands on that uh, set of questions 
with with Judy's and Sean's leadership, I think is going to be really interesting because they will they will go about that work really really well and thoughtfully, and and they will make their decisions out of a, a phenomenal value system that includes a deep respect for each person, with a little lean not a little lean with a lean toward um, those who are most frail. But in your in your opinion, based upon your experience mm-hmm. and and knowing the game, knowing the field as you do, mm-hmm. the, the the one line that you use it really you know sparks something in me in the in the idea of maybe it's not the best idea if somebody's dealing with dementia and or Alzheimer's to just place them in a wing surrounded by other people in the same way. Did you? Is it your opinion that you think that a more integrative, inclusive population where there's all kinds of different levels of cognition and families and visiting would be actually better for a person? That's been Kendall's historic approach. Uh, I was in the early 70s. Uh, I was a part of creating a special care unit where we aggregated the population that was uh, cognitively impaired onto one floor of a multi-story Building, and um, came to be to came to feel that, that that needed to be undone because what we saw was a compounding of the confusion and also a significant burnout of the staff. Cognitively impaired folks individually and as a group need more engagement, need more structured activities, need a more intense staffing model. Not so much, in my experience, around nursing as 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 around providing meaningful activity uh, and purpose. And and there are lots of ways to do that. Music uh, is a, is a wonderful example. Yeah, we keep hearing that music is. I keep hearing that music. And also uh, um, animals. Both. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, and there are others. Uh, yeah. Art has a role to play. Certain gardening has a tremendous uh, role to play. And, and we've seen our, our affiliate Barclay Friends in Westchester do a phenomenal job with horticulture and also with music um, in, in particular. So the, the programming does have to be special. Um, how, the, how, how population should be mixed residentially in terms of where they live at night, um, that is worthy of rethinking. And I don't land in one place or the other on that one. I think we have to to ground uh, our future work in this area based on solid research and and worthy experiments that are coupled with research. And I think that's being rethought in in the better communities around the, the country. What we see often is that a memory support unit or an Alzheimer's unit or by whatever name is used as a marketing device. And um, one wants to be careful that people aren't collected into a, a building and, and the consumer is sold something that sounds like a, a, um, a, um, a solution. Mm-hmm. When when you get up under it, uh, the staff and the resident population may not be terrifically engaged, and a physical structure is being used to manage a population rather than human beings supporting and serving human beings. So you, uh, that's an area for 
the consuming public uh, to be careful. And I'm, in, I'm encouraged. I, I like the way that my colleagues um, are going about this. I'll be as interested as anyone to see what they learn and how they um, may reposition some of that program. The Kendall affiliates are doing some interesting work on their own. Most of them are located near uh, really fine tertiary hospitals, and some of them are academic uh, institutions as well. So I'm, I'm seeing among our colleagues at Kendall and other places uh, really good work going into to kind of figuring out based on current population demographics, current levels of acuity, and best thinking and, and research findings of, of how best to serve these populations going forward. We, we say at Kendall that um, we have a document called Values and Practices. It's really important that the values be enduring. It's also really important that the practices are open to being rethought and not get the two confused. So um, there's a really good foundation, a values foundation at Kendall, and there's a really good process in place, I think, to reexamine the practices. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I, mean, I know the values level at Kendall and uh, very, very well because we've talked about it here on the air, and, and obviously Kendall's the major sponsor of Boomer Generation Radio. But th- this idea of changing the the procedure of dealing with memory care units because I, as, as I drive around the area, you know, and you see the advertisements all over, we have a tremendous memory care unit. We'll put everybody in a room or a ward or a floor or a building. And, you know, I, I, what you're saying, I think is, it's very, very fascinating that this could be a way while on the surface, it looks wonderful. Um, it may be a way of really controlling people, Lessening the impact of staff, everybody's controlled, um, and and creating more of the, what we started the show with a sense of isolation. Um, well, I would say, if I may no. add, I would say also be very conscious of medication levels um, and uh, use a case manager or, or other skilled clinician to to take a look at. Uh, how people are being managed in these kinds of settings. Are they being managed with alarm systems and higher levels of medication um, as opposed to being um, supported by an actively engaged staff uh, that's getting people involved and engaged in a numbers of worthwhile activities? You know, let me ask you a couple questions because you raised something that's that's – the articles and the statistics I'm reading is saying that as our generation ages out, they're just not going to be enough qualified caregivers, geriatricians, nurses to take care of us. And um, every person I've interviewed here who is in this field agrees with this. Uh, every article and book I've read agrees with this. Um, so you raise a very interesting... About the use of drugs to control people. I mean, I may be going off on a little bit of a conspiracy theory now, but you opened the door for this. How big of a danger is it as our population ages out, 76 million baby boomers, and there's not enough people to be qualified? Is there a real danger in just saying, look, just give two extra pills and keep these people calm? Or am I too Hollywoodizing this up? No, it's been a problem uh, throughout the history of our field that uh, you had a po- cognitively impaired population, and you'd find 
uh, too much Haldol, Melaril, and the various zines, uh, Stelazine and others, administered as a mechanism to control a population. Um, and don't, I mean, it's, it, cognitively impaired populations can be difficult to manage, but people can be taught how to engage folks in ways that reduce anxiety and, and, uh, and affect behavior positively, and that's what you want to do. So that's all, that's always been a problem. It, it, when you have a, these locked wards or special care units, and you have a staff that largely works out of the view of cognitively intact residents, you, you have, um, a circumstance in which it is possible to have more, and I'm going to use a strong word here, abuse or um, sub-optimized ways of managing people than when there are more eyes on the situation. So uh, we, we have work to do to, to recognize the impact of a higher percentage of these populations that have cognitive impairment and at the same time not drift out of convenience into care models that are less um, engaging and humane. What's the role of the family, though, in in being an advocate and, you know, as opposed to saying, okay, the, the institution will take care of everything. But what I'm also hearing you say is, listen, if you're a family member and your loved one has to be placed in one of these facilities, you, the, your obligation doesn't stop there. You now have to really be an invested advocate to make sure that the drugs are there, that they're, if they're not overused, that there's not a sense of isolation. I would imagine this is a real challenge. It, it is everywhere and even in the best of institutions, whether they're long-term care or hospital. You don't want to go into any facet of the healthcare system without an advocate who's right there and fighting for you all the way. Um, my dad was in an excellent... Uh, a skilled nursing facility as he bounced back and forth between hospital and long-term care as he approached death in the last two years of his life. Um, two strokes, an aneurysm, tracheotomy. Hmm. Um, and we, are, his, his family, um, secured a private duty aid um, in addition to the staffing of the community because my brother and I both lived two, um, two hours apart and in different directions. Still, when we came in to see him, uh, the private duty aide, unbeknownst to us, was a smoker, mm. um, tied my dad up. Uh, he, we found him thrashing, literally, between a mattress and a bed rail, bruises on his arms, mad as the dickens, and at risk. Um, we found another person more dependable and um, and things went better from that point on but you, you you just at any stage of any healthcare system we all i'm sure have heard of instances in which uh, something didn't go well um, and it just is really important to have when you're in a state of some dependency whether you're going into surgery or you've lost some cognitive ability it's important to have advocates who are close to you and committed to you. This patient advocate thing, we, we've talked to some people. It's a growth industry right now, isn't it? It is. Uh, there are a lot of folks in the the uh, case management business. And, and again, you, you want to 
There's a lot of potential in, with in-home care for uh, suboptimized treatment or even abuse. So you've got to select your uh, providers well and also continue to be active in, actively engaged with a family member who's in that system. Just talk to me for because we're going to start to run out of time soon. Um, the all of the things we're talking about, just the, the selection of a CCRC, the selection of a nursing home, the selection of a patient advocate um, to work with you and to be, especially if there's a long distance thing, um, an operation we've dealt with. I've we've dealt with him here on the show. I've dealt with him in in my own you know counseling uh, facility, you know, a, a practice. Of people here in the greater Philadelphia, they have a parent in Florida or Arizona, they can't get back and forth, they hire this growing numbers of companies who will be the eyes and ears. This is really, there's, where does a family start, how does a family begin to make plans as opposed to waiting till the crisis hits? Hmm. This is a real important thing, is it, to have a care plan developed? Right. Um. And again, you know, I'll reflect my bias yeah, because no, I've spent that, all, all my life in the not-for-profit sector. Around the country, there are a, a couple of thousand continuing to care retirement communities. There are six to 7,000 uh, members of our national association called Leading Age. They're not-for-profit providers. Um, a number of the, these organizations are accredited by a group called um, CARF, C-A-R-F, slash C-C-A-C, the latter four letters, meaning the Continuing Care Accreditation Commission. Um, that's accessible by by web. So what's, the, what's that web again? CARF, slash C-C-A-C. C- CARF is C-A-R-F? Right. So it's the Coalition for the Accreditation of... Uh, rehabilitation facilities, and it acquired the Continuing Care Accreditation uh, Commission, which operates as a sort of a freestanding accreditation program. Um, that there are published lists of somewhere on the order of 300 to 500 um, providers that are both not-for-profit and accredited. They're great places to begin. Um, they genuinely have the best interests of people being served at heart. Many of them operate continuing care programs. They operate fee-for-service programs. And, and increasingly, they operate home and community-based programs. Um, and they may not be able to serve each individual, mm-hmm. but they, their staffs are generally knowledgeable about service options in their areas. And if I were a consumer and I were living um, somewhere that, with which I was not greatly familiar, uh, my first call would be to one of those accredited um, providers. And there are other resources uh, in their state governments, their area associations on aging. There, um, There's the area agencies on aging? There, thank you, area agencies on aging. There are... Uh, Departments of Aging in Communities as places to begin. But it's kind of like the, the world of financial advisors. There are lots of financial advisors out there who are ready to take your money and tell you how to invest it, and some are great and some are not so great. How do you decide which ones are the best? Well, you have to ask around from people you trust, whose integrity you trust, in order to um, get to work with somebody that you are probably going to be able to count on. Yeah, it's it just seems to be, and you're validating this that in this day and age, given all the choices, 
and the healthcare system that a family really does have to sit down and, if they can, prior to crisis and really map out as much of this uh, as a care plan as, as, as humanly possible. We, we have about five minutes left. Yeah. We're out of time. Um, but I, I just want to end by just asking you just to reflect a little bit upon your own transition, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Um, uh, you're, you're moving into the next dynamic phase of your life, you and your wife. Um, you've completed 40 years of one, one task and ready to move on. Um, so looking backward and, more importantly, looking forward, what, what have you learned about this concept of transitioning? Because we have a lot of people on the show uh, who – even some companies and people who do this perfect will help manage your transition. Sure. Just reflect a little bit upon this. I, I feel so fortunate, Richard. Um, my successor is a wonderful human being and has been with Kendall almost eight years. So I feel great about the leadership of the organization. I value um, the team with which I worked. We have a fabulous board, and I've been blessed to serve uh, some of our country's treasures over my lifetime, people who... Um, have led careers in education, in healthcare, in in um, business. They've been active not only in their vocational lives but their avocational lives. They're our society's givers. They're really wonderful, wonderful people. And the staff teams with which I've worked, um, we've all felt privileged to be able to work in these um, contexts. So I feel great looking in the rearview mirror, the career that I've had, and the hands that it is in going forward. Um, my wife and I are excited about our future. We are involved in a number of volunteer things. I'll do a little light consulting. Uh, we have kids living at some distance we want to see more often. And we have some recreational things we love doing together. So that's all good. I've been, been fortunate to plan this transition with the board. We've done succession planning every other year almost since the day I was hired. Mm. So we've had a plan in place for an emergency transition and for an orderly transition. We started this process about three years ago when I said to the board, I I think it's about time that we made this transition. Uh, The timing in terms of Kendall's agenda has worked, I think, really well. It's kind of been in between a period of rapid growth and the next phase of the organization's life. Um, That feels right to me. Um, The timing in terms of our own circumstances uh, is is ideal, uh, I think, as well. Um, I have the passion for this work still, as you can probably hear in my voice. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I know that the time is here to to put it in the hands of somebody able to go at that more vigorously uh, than I. So... It raises the question of how do you, what's the right way to leave an organization? Um, and our board and I and my successor are all on the same page that when a former CEO steps aside, much like a pastor or rabbi in a religious congregation, uh, one should step aside pretty completely and um, hope to retain friendships. Uh, but make as much room as possible for a successor to bond with um, the congregation, if you will, and uh, both uh, within the congregation and within the field so that there's no mistaking who the leader is. So um, as I I say, it's all good. Uh, It's a wonderful 40-year career, the last wonderful 24 years of it with Kendall, 
And uh, I think my exit and uh, the selection and engagement of my successor are all going really well. Well, uh, it's time for our exit today. So, uh, John, I want to thank you very much for giving us of your time, your expertise and your knowledge, and most of all, just the, the blessing of what you've done. And I have no doubt what you will continue to do in the next stage of your life. So thank you very much for joining us on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. I wish you and your wife uh, much happiness and joy. Travel safe. And... Um, uh, hope to see you at a Phillies game. You know, Thank never you. know. You Thank never you. know. It's been great being with you. Thank you. Say hello to our friends at Kendall. To all of you, thank you very much for joining us on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We'll see you same time uh, Tuesday morning, next Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. here on WWDB. Take care. Have a great week. Stay safe, everyone.